Well, again, on Wednesday evenings, we are working our way one chapter each week through the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And so far, we are three weeks in. So a couple of weeks ago, Sean began the series by giving a historical background to the confession. And then last week, Anthony taught from chapter one on the doctrine of the scriptures. And then this evening, we're in chapter two, which speaks of God and of the Holy Trinity. Did everyone get one of these uh, documents, these sheets? If you didn't, there are still some right out in the hallway uh, with the confession typed out on it. So tonight we're on chapter 2 of God and of the Holy Trinity. It makes sense that the confession would move from chapter 1, which deals with what? The scriptures, that's right, scriptures, into chapter 2, which deals with God. We begin with Revelation. The scriptures are the only certain and sufficient revelation of God. And so naturally we go from the revelation of the scriptures to the character of God. We have to begin with the scriptures if we're going to know God. And so the confession logically moves from the statement regarding the Bible and its exclusive authority as the revelation of God into now talking about the character of, the character of God and his being. So chapter 2. It's three paragraphs, if you notice, on the document. By the way, if you flip over the document, then you'll notice on the back, it's still the same words, three paragraphs, but it's broken down into my best attempt at an outline. Um, So three paragraphs, and if you look there, each of the paragraphs has a heading, a title that I've given to it. The first paragraph, God's existence and attributes... The second paragraph, God's relationship with creation. And then the third paragraph, God's relationship with himself. In other words, the Trinity. So the chapter is dealing with who God is. It begins with a a statement regarding his existence and his being and what he's like. Then it talks about how God relates to us as his creatures. And then it talks about how God relates to himself as the three persons of the Trinity who exist in one essence or being, which is God. There's an important verse, a couple of verses, in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 9, I'll turn there. Jeremiah chapter 9, in verses 23 to 24, we read these words regarding the importance of the knowledge of God. It says in verse 23, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom... And let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Let the one who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. In other words, what the prophet Jeremiah is saying is that the most important thing about you, the thing that will most define you as a human being and most govern your life, is whether or not you understand and know the Lord. That's what Jeremiah is saying. The most important thing about you is what you think and believe about God. If you think about it, everything about you is determined by that. How you interact with others is determined by how you view God. How you manage your relationships with others is determined by what you think of God. How you work 
how you face trials, how you organize your life and set visions and plans and hopes and dreams for yourself. All of that is determined by what you think about God. And so Jeremiah says, don't boast in your wisdom, don't boast in your, in your riches, don't boast in your strength, but boast in this. Find hope and joy and strength in this, that you understand and know the Lord. That's chapter 2. That's what chapter 2 is all about in this confession. It is a concise summary statement of the Bible's teaching on who God is. And it is impossible to even begin working through it in any thorough or sufficient way in 40 minutes. So what we're going to do is we're going to do our best to skim it. And I think for probably for many of us, the things we hear will be very important reminders of things we know. And, and that is not to be discredited as insignificant or unimportant for the Christian. One of the reasons we want to do the confession, one of the reasons we're going through this series, is because the believer needs to be reminded again and again and again of the foundational truths of the Bible. And so there's nothing trite or trivial in covering the, the foundational truths of who God is and how he interacts with creation. This is very important. We should give our hearts and our attention to it, not just tonight, but even walking away from this time this evening, reminding ourselves that we should never move past things like chapter 2 of the Confession. A knowledge of God is never old news. It is always very relevant and very important in the life of the believer. And so we're going to jump right in to the Confession, to chapter 2, beginning, first of all, in the first paragraph, which, as listed there on your outline, has to do with God's existence and his attributes. I'll just go piece by piece through the paragraph. I won't read the whole thing first. I'll just read a little bit at a time as we go through it. So the first part of the paragraph, the first sentence, God is God alone. That's the heading for this sentence, the subheading. God is God alone. The confession says, the Lord our God is the one and only living and true God. God is God alone. There are places in the Bible that speak of other gods. Have you ever come across like in the Psalms where you see something about other gods and wondered what is it talking about when it talks about other gods? Well, that's the Bible's way of humbling itself down to the level of human speech because we all create idols and the nations had all sorts of gods. They worshiped all sorts of different deities. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 4, he says, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no, no God but one. He goes on to say, there are many idols, there are many lords. We know that many people have many different gods that they worship. But the Apostle Paul's point is, they're all false gods. There is one true and living God. The human heart is an, an idol factory, as has been said. It's, it creates idols incessantly. Our hearts sinfully and naturally, have a propensity to, to create gods for ourselves, to try to worship something other than gods, than, than the true God, I should say. We're reminded here in the confession, there is only one to be worshipped. There is one true God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4. So God is God alone. And then second, God is self-sufficient. The next sentence in the confession reads, his subsistence, being life or existence, is in and of himself. God is self-sufficient. 
The point being made there is simply that God does not depend upon anything outside of himself to be himself. There is nothing that contributes to the being of God. There's nothing that adds to the being of God or takes away from the being of God. There's there's nothing that God needs outside of himself to be God. He's entirely self-sufficient. As he says to Moses in Exodus, he says, I am who I am. I am who I am. I, I need nothing outside of myself to be me. I am eternally and forever self-sufficient. The confession says next that God is infinite, which is letter C if you're following along in the outline. God is infinite. A little bit longer section here. He sa- the confession says he is infinite in being and perfection, and his essence cannot be understood by anyone but himself. He is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. He alone has immortality and dwells in the light which no man can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, beyond containment, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, infinite in every way, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. Now that is a lot in that statement. There's a lot there. But the, the, the main point of all of it is God is infinite in every way. If someone were to ask you, what does it mean that God is infinite? How would you respond? What does it mean to be infinite? Well, it means, at the most foundational level, it means to be boundless, to be without limit. We don't have categories for that kind of thinking in our human brains because our brains are by nature bounded and limited by finiteness. But to be infinite is to be entirely without bounds, to be entirely without limits. And so what we're reading in the confession in this section is that God is infinite or boundless or limitless or utterly perfect in every single way, in all that he is. So he is infinite in his existence. What does it mean that God is infinite in his existence? He's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's not bound by time. And he's infinite in his power and his holiness and his wisdom and authority. In other words, all of God's attributes are limitless in their perfection. So, again, we don't have categories for that. My love has limits. My goodness certainly has limits. My patience certainly has limits. God is limitless in all that he is, boundless in all of his perfections. And he's infinite in his imminence, which means God is not contained by space. He is imminent. He is in all places at all times without exception. He's not bound by space or time. He is imminent, infinitely imminent. So what does that mean for us? How does it affect your daily life to know that God is infinite in all of his being? How should that affect the way we live? More specifically, how should that affect the way we approach God? I think at perhaps the most straightforward uh, level, the, the, the most straightforward way to answer that question would be to say it should humble us. That God is infinite means that he cannot ever be comprehended by our finite minds. So who can understand God? Who can know God fully? 
In order to understand an infinite being, you have to have an infinite mind. The only person who is able to fully understand, fully grasp all that God is, is God. He is infinite in his being and requires an infinite mind in order to be understood in his entirety. And so when we approach God, our highest thoughts of him, the, the most glorious things we could ever think about God, are not even to be compared with the fullness of his being. So if we have grandiose thoughts about the power of God, we should be humbled to think that we have no idea what the power of God really is. I mean, we have an idea because he's revealed it to us. We can compare it to certain things analogously. But in its essence, God's power limitlessly exceeds our highest imagination. Same with his love, his goodness, his justice. Every attribute of God so far exceeds our greatest thoughts that it is an infinite gulf between what we think and what he really is. We can know him truly, so we shouldn't think from God's infinitude that we can't really know him at all. We can. God has revealed himself to us, and we can be confident of what God has revealed. But we could never know him fully, not comprehensively, not in all of his being. He is infinite and therefore incomprehensible, as the statement says in the confession. And it's interesting to think that even in heaven, even in eternity to come, as we dwell with God in glorified bodies, our minds will still not arrive at a full comprehensive knowledge of God. In all eternity, as we live with God throughout all eternity, we will never reach a perfect and full knowledge of God. One theologian put it this way. He said, even in the perfection of a redeemed heaven and earth in glory, even with resurrected and glorified bodies and minds purged of sin and death, even then, we will never comprehend the infinite, perfect, self-existing God. Yes, we will know him sinlessly and in that sense perfectly, but never extensively. God's infinitude should humble us. He is incomprehensibly great. And then next, letter D on the sheet, if you have it in front of you. God is sovereign. The statement says, He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable, and most righteous will for his own glory. God is sovereign. He is in perfect and absolute control. There's nothing that God desires to accomplish that depends on the cooperation of someone else. So God's salvation of you doesn't depend on your cooperation. He saves you by his own power, by his own doing, by his own sovereign will. God's creation depended on nothing outside of himself. He is sovereign in all that he does. He depends on no one and nothing. As uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. God does everything he wants to do. And then lastly for this first paragraph, God is loving and just. Letter E. God is loving and just. It says, he is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, and is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. At the same time, he is most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and will by no means clear or acquit the guilty. God is perfect in his love, and God is perfect in his justice. And nowhere do we see 
the love and the justice of God so clearly displayed as in the cross of Jesus. God is all love. He loves even undeserving sinners. And God is all justice. He cannot overlook a single sin without punishment. And so how is a loving God and a just God able to save sinners through the cross of Christ? The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that through the cross where God slayed his son so that his justice was satisfied and God gave his son in love for sinners, at the cross, Paul says, that God can be both just, righteous, and the justifier or the forgiver of the one who has faith in Jesus. Salvation makes no sense without the cross. The cross alone is able to explain how God can be righteous and hate sin and punish sin and at the same time be a God of love. It's at the cross where his justice is satisfied out of love for sinners. And so we've seen then in the first paragraph those five different aspects of the existence and attributes of God. He is God alone. He is self-sufficient, he is infinite, he is sovereign, and he is loving and just. Then the second paragraph, God's relationship with creation. So now moving from who God is in his attributes, his existence, to how God interacts with what he has made, his creation. First, God's independence from creation. The first part of the paragraph, God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is all sufficient in and to, and to himself. He does not stand in need of any creature which he has made, nor does he derive any glory from them. Rather, he manifests his own glory in, by, to, and upon them. Why did God create the world? Think about that for a second. Why did God create the world? We can answer the question negatively, as the confession does. We can answer the question negatively. God did not create the world out of a sense of need. God did not create the world because he needed something outside of himself in order to make him happy or complete or satisfied. He didn't create the world because he lacked some degree of glory that he wanted to gain for himself. When God created Adam... Adam was in the garden and he was the only human being on the earth. What did God say about him? He said, it's not good for man to be alone. He needed a companion. He needed another image bearer with whom to be in relationship. It's not good for man to be alone. He was lacking. At no point in eternity did God ever say about himself, it's not good for me to be alone. I need a companion. I need someone to share my being with. I need someone to be in relationship with. At no point in eternity did God say what he said about Adam. It is not good for me to be alone. And the reason he never said anything like that is because God already had in himself, as we'll see in the next section, perfect and full and completely satisfying fellowship among the three persons of the Trinity. God was never lonely in eternity. He never had need for further fellowship or for further glory. The infinite glory of God is eternally enjoyed and witnessed by the three persons of the Trinity. He didn't need someone else to add to his glory. Nothing outside of the being of God ever could add to or take away from his inherent glory. So 
So why did God create all things? He created all things simply to express his glory. Not because he needed to, but because he wanted to. It was God's eternal wisdom to determine to display his glory. It was the delight of his own heart to create in order to reveal himself to his creatures. He didn't need to do that. He had no lack, but out of his own desire as the eternal God, he created all things in order to display the glory that he eternally possesses. So how should that affect you? How should that change the way you think about God or the way you think about yourself to know that God needs nothing outside of himself and that God doesn't need you? God has no need of you. How does that affect the way you think about yourself, the way you think about God? Maybe at first it crushes you and you feel insignificant and unwanted. And that would be a wrong takeaway, by the way. God wants you. He desires you. He loves you. He has a heart of affection for you. But he doesn't need you. But God, the fact that God doesn't need us is actually a huge encouragement to us. Because God loves us then, not because of something that we do for him. God doesn't love us because we can do something that he needs. God loves us because of who he is in his own being. God loves us because it's the overflow of his nature to love us of his essence. And that's encouraging because it means then that there's nothing that you or I could ever do to change or pers- persuade God to not love us. Ever. He doesn't need you. He doesn't love you because of a need of you. And so his love is dependent on you. It's dependent on himself and on himself alone. As Sam Waldron puts it, he says there is something wonderfully consoling in the fact that our great God who loves us so much has always been eternally blessed in the heavens and not in need of human praise or help in righteousness. It is wonderful to know that his electing love cannot change and is not affected by anything in or about us. God's existence is independent from creation. He's independent from creation. And then secondly, letter B there, God's complete ownership of creation. The confession says... He only is the fountain or the source of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and he has most sovereign dominion over all creatures, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatever he pleases. How conscious are you in this moment that your complete existence entirely depends upon God? How conscious are you right now, as you take a breath, as you sit in your chair, how conscious are you that you would not even exist in this moment if it were not for the sustaining power of God? You exist because God causes you to exist, moment by moment, incessantly, now and through eternity, you exist only by the sustaining power of God. The reality is, if at any moment God wanted to, we know from his word that he won't, but if for some reason God wanted to no longer sustain you in your being, you would you would vanish. You would cease to exist. You would have no being. God's being is eternal. There, is only, there are only two categories. There is creator and there is created. There's no in-between. There is one creator who is eternal in his being, and there is created who depends 100% for its being upon the uncreated. And if the uncreated God at any point determined to cease to sustain the, created, the creature, the creature would cease to exist entirely. 
And so we owe our complete existence to God. He is the source, the fountain, it says, of all being. And the point that this part of the confession is making is that because every creature owes its utter dependence, its utter existence upon God, then God has a right to demand whatever he wants from his creatures. God alone has complete ownership over you. You are his. You have no right to live as an independent being apart from your creator. He owns, he has sovereign dominion over all things because he sustains everything. And he can do by them, for them, or upon them, whatever he pleases. Wouldn't it be terrifying if God were not good? It would be a terrifying thing to have a God upon whom we're entirely dependent, and yet who was capricious and wicked and cruel. How good it is that our God who sustains us is also the God who loves us and who is perfectly righteous. And then letter C, God's perfect knowledge of creation. In his sight, all things are clear and manifest or plain. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent of created beings, so that to him, nothing is contingent or uncertain. You and I can make plans to do things. I was just talking with someone yesterday who was planning to go to the beach, who is still, I think, planning to go to the beach this weekend. And the weather is supposed to be terrible in the Outer Banks on Saturday and Sunday, and I think pretty much all week. He made plans to go to the beach. He made plans to sit out in the sun and enjoy the sand and the water and enjoy vacation. But those plans are contingent upon factors that are outside of his control. Sunshine, warm weather, safe travel, a car that doesn't break down. So he can make plans to go to the beach, but unless all these other factors upon which his plans are contingent come together, his plans won't reach fruition. What the What the uh, confession is saying is that God is not like that. He doesn't make plans in the hopes that other factors will come together in order for those plans to reach fulfillment. He knows all things perfectly. There's no what's or ifs with God. What ifs with God? There is only his knowledge, his plan. And there are no factors outside of his plan and his knowledge that could ever turn away what he has purposed to do or could ever thwart it or stop it. And so God knows all things, and therefore nothing that he does is ever contingent upon unknown factors. And he knows all things because he determines all things. He's sovereign over it. So a weatherman can predict the weather for tomorrow, and let's say say there's an infallible weatherman. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If we had a perfect weatherman who could say every day for weeks in advance what the weather was going to be to the degree to the amount of sun, to the exact time of rain, everything he said was right on the spot, perfect, flawless, inerrant, best weatherman to ever live. That would be great. And, and we shouldn't think of God's knowledge like the perfect weatherman. Because the perfect weatherman can look forward and see what the weather is going to be, and God can look forward and see what the future is going to be, but the weatherman is not in control of the weather, whereas God is in control of the future. And so God is not just an infallible weatherman. He is the sovereign creator and sustainer and determiner of everything. And therefore, he knows everything perfectly. And then letter D, God's holy government of creation. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. So all that God speaks with his mouth or purposes 
is an expression of who he is. And who he is is perfect righteousness. And so everything that God speaks, everything that God does, it flows out of his being, his nature. He can never speak something that contradicts his being. Because he is perfectly righteous, all of his counsels, all of his commands, and all that he does is righteous. And so we should never put ourselves then in the position of judge over God. We should never try to evaluate what God does in order to determine whether or not he's done the right thing in our lives. It may seem at times like what God does is unfair or unjust, corrupt in some way. We, we may look at something that God does and think that, that there's no way that that is a good thing. God has not acted righteously. And so we put ourselves in the position of judge over God and we determine whether or not what he's done is right or wrong. The problem is, if we think that God has done something unjustly, it's not that God has acted unjustly. The problem is that our perspective, our uh, understanding of what God has done is so tainted by our limitedness and our sin that we misjudge his actions. And so instead of putting ourselves in the position of judge over God, we should gladly submit ourselves in trust under God, and we should acknowledge that he makes no mistakes. He is perfectly righteous. And when we don't understand, and when things seem overwhelmingly wrong to us, we should rest in the assurance that all his counsels, all his commands, and all that he does is perfect. Letter E, God's right to be worshipped by creation. God's right to be worshipped by creation. He is entitled to whatever worship, service, or obedience angels and men considered as creatures owe to the creator and whatever else he is pleased to require of them. So really, this last sentence is just a uh, culmination of everything that precedes it in this paragraph. God is independent of his creatures, having no need of them. God is the owner of all creation. He has sovereign dominion over it as its creator and sustainer. God has perfect knowledge of creation and perfectly determines the course of creation. And God righteously governs creation. And so the natural response to all of that is worship to worship the creator. He has complete and sovereign right to demand and deserve the worship of his creatures. R.C. Sproul used to say, theology must always end in, anyone know? Doxology, that's right. Theology must always end in doxology. Theology is the study of God, the study of who God is, how God works. Doxology is what? Worship, that's right. It's worship. And so good theology must always lead to worship. A right understanding of God will always produce, when it's a true spiritual understanding of God, a right understanding of theology will always produce genuine doxology, genuine worship of God. And that's what the confession is saying here. When we understand who God is, then we will gladly agree with God's statement that he is worthy of our worship and we will gladly worship him. He is entitled to whatever worship, service, or obedience you or I could ever give him, simply because of who he is. All right, everyone still with me? First two paragraphs, God's existence and attributes, God's relationship with creation, and now thirdly, God's relationship with himself, in other words, the Trinity. So before we even jump in, I will preface it with what I hope we all understand. 
this is an attempt in the confession to state the doctrine of the Trinity, not explain the doctrine of the Trinity. We get into all sorts of error when we move from stating what the Bible says about the Trinity to trying to explain things the Bible has never said to us. Trying to get behind the scenes and understand the, the, um, the intricate workings of, or the inner workings of the Trinity. We can say what the Bible says. And we can deny what the Bible denies, but we can't say what the Bible doesn't say. And so we have to be careful as we enter into discussion of the Trinity to remember this is mysterious. We are talking about something, again, that is incomprehensible. We can grasp what God has said. We cannot grasp God's nature in his fullness and his entirety. So the Trinity is certainly a doctrine of mystery to us. And yet it's not something that the Bible is completely silent um, with regard to. The Bible says a good deal about the Trinity. Though the word Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible. It is deduced, it is understood by clear teaching in the Bible. So God is one and God is three. God is one God and yet he exists in three persons. So the doctrine of the Trinity is stated there in letter A, first part of the paragraph. We read, in this divine and infinite being there are three subsistences or persons, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, put very simply, here in this first uh, sentence, the doctrine of the Trinity is stated. There is one being who is God. There are not three beings. There is one being who is God. He is indivisible in his nature. He is indivisible in his essence. He is one. And yet in his subsistence, or in his persons, he is three. And so the confession, rightly so, according to uh, the very earliest uh, expressions of the Trinity in the church as people wrestled with how to understand the Bible's teaching with regard to God. These are the categories that have been used from the very earliest days of the church, the essence or being of God and the subsistence or the persons of God. And so in his essence, he is one. In his persons, he is three. In other words, as I've labeled it here in the, the outline, letter B, there is unity within the Trinity. And then letter C, there is diversity in the Trinity. There is both unity and diversity in God. First, there is unity, and that's found there in those portions of the confession listed under B. The unity of the Trinity. These three are of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence is undivided. The Father is not derived from anyone. He is neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. They are all infinite, without beginning, and therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being. There is one God. The three persons are one. So the distinction among the persons of the Trinity then, when we're talking about the persons of the Trinity and we distinguish them from one another, the Father from the Son, the Son from the Spirit, that in no way implies a distinction in the essence of God. Division or separation in the essence of God. And at the same time, we're not saying that God is composed by these three different persons. Imagine that you have a pie. And you cut that pie into thirds so that you now have three pieces of pie. And if you take one piece of that pie away, you now have two-thirds of the pie. And if you take another piece, you have one-third of the pie left. And if you bring all the three pieces back together, you have a whole pie again. 
three-thirds of a pie, and the pie is complete. Is that how we should think about God? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they come together to collectively compose the being of God in the way that those three pieces of pie did. No, not at all. Because every person is God, fully. They're not each a portion of God or a part of God who come together to form the complete God. The Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. The Father is fully God. And they're indivisible in their essence, though distinct in their persons. So we shouldn't think about it in terms of a pie. In fact, as most of you know, we shouldn't think of it in terms of really any illustration. Because every illustration we try to come up with to describe the Trinity is going to fall very far short and probably lead us into heresy. So we want to stay away from illustrations. Now, for an illustration, I'm just kidding. No, so we shouldn't think of God as a pie. We should think of God as one, one essence, all three persons fully equal in their deity, in their divinity. But there's also diversity within the Trinity. And we see that, letter C, in the statement of the confession, nevertheless, they are distinguished by several distinctive relative properties and by personal relations. They are distinguished by several distinctive relative properties and by personal relations. How many of you are familiar with the heresy of modalism? Some. Modalism. So modalism is often associated with an illustration. Again, stay away from illustrations. It's a heresy, by the way, modalism. And it's associated with the illustration that compares the Trinity to water, H2O. So you can have water in three forms, can't you? You can have water in solid form when it's ice. You can have solid in liquid form when it's water, liquid. And you can have water in gas form when it's vapor. Is that how we should think about God? That God is just like that, water. He's really one essence, but he manifests himself in three different ways in different situations under different circumstances. Sometimes God reveals himself as father, Sometimes God reveals himself as son. Some people think in the Old Testament, God revealed himself as father. In the New Testament, in the days of Jesus, God manifests himself as son. And then in the, uh, after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, God now manifests himself in the New Testament era as spirit. Is that the way we should think about Trinity? He's really just one person who manifests himself in three different ways, father, son, and spirit. No, of course not. Modalism minimizes and diminishes the distinctness of the person's. And we need to maintain that the Father, though one with the Son in essence, is not the Son. And the Son, though one with the Father and the Spirit in essence, is not the Father or the Spirit. And the Spirit, though one with the Father and the Son in essence, is not the Father or the Spirit. They are distinct in their personhood, in their relative properties, in the way that they relate to one another, and the functions that they carry out, especially in regard to the work of creation and redemption. They're distinct. They are three persons they are one in essence. Some other ways that we can see the danger of blending the persons of the Trinity and, and failing to maintain their distinctiveness is to say something like, the Father and the Son are one in essence and being, but the Son did not send the Father into the world, did he? They're two different persons. And so if you lose the distinctiveness of the persons, then it doesn't make any sense. How could the Son send the Father We know that the Father sent the Son. The Father and the Son are one, but the Father did not suffer on the cross. The Son did. The Father and the Son are one, but the Father is not our mediator. 
The Son is. The Father and the Son are one, but the Father did not pray to the Son. The Son prayed to the Father and intercedes on our behalf. And so we must maintain both the essential unity of the Trinity, but also the distinctness of the persons. If we lose the the unity of the Trinity, we have uh, uh, polytheism, almost said polygamy, different topic, polytheism. And if we lose the distinctiveness of the persons, then we fall into modalism and fail to maintain the important differences that there are relationally between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One of the clearest places in Scripture, if you want to turn there with me, is Matthew chapter 28. This is one of the places where both the unity and diversity are seen most clearly. In the Great Commission, Jesus is telling his disciples now what they are to do now that he has been raised from the dead. And he says in Matthew 28, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So clearly we have the three persons of the Trinity there, don't we? The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all mentioned together. Three persons in one spot. But how many names do the Father, the Son, and the Spirit possess? And and how many names are we to be baptized? Are we to be baptized in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Spirit? Or are we to be baptized in the names of the Father, Son, and Spirit? No, we're to be baptized in the name, singular, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Spirit. They are three persons and they share one name, according to Jesus. And name in the Bible refers to much more than just something you're called by. It has to do with your being, your identity, your existence, who you are. And so Jesus is saying there is one name who is God, and the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they share that name together. They are equally God. One name, three persons. We see unity and diversity. All right. To conclude, to finish up for the evening, the last letter there, D, The foundational importance of the Trinity. Why does this matter? What changes in your life because you understand something of the Trinity? Well, for one, it is what makes Christianity distinct. No other religion has a God like this. Most religions think we're crazy for having a God like this. It is unique to Christianity to have one in three The writers of the Confession believed that the Trinity is foundational to our relationship with God, to our complete understanding of who he is. It is foundational. It says in the last sentence of this chapter, this doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion or fellowship with God and our comfortable, secure, and assured dependence on him. The foundation of all our communion or fellowship and our comfortable dependence upon him. Have you ever thought about the Trinity in those terms? That you would not have a relationship with God apart from the Trinity. How much of an impact does it make as you begin your day and go throughout your day to know that you worship not just one, but three? How much of a difference does it make to know that you are in relationship not just with the Father, but with the Son and the Holy Spirit? Without the Trinity, you have no salvation. Without the Trinity, you have no redemption. You could not, you would not be saved if it were not for the love of the Father who chose you, 
elected you in his love to belong to himself and sent his son for you. You would not and you could not be saved if it were not for the son who came into the world to die for you and to make atonement for your sin under the wrath of the father. And you would not and you could not be saved if it were not for the eternal love of the spirit who unites you to Christ, regenerates your heart and gives you faith and sustains you in your relationship and communion with God. You need the Father and His love for you. You need the Son and His love for you. And you need the Spirit and His love for you. And if you lose one of those persons, then you lose it all. There is no salvation. There's no redemption apart from the Trinity. We see the importance of the Trinity in Paul's benediction in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The grace of of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We need the grace of Christ. We need the love of the Father. We need the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Ours is a Trinitarian salvation. We could go to all kinds of other passages tonight that show the importance of the Trinity in our relationship to God. There's a guy named John Ruther, and he wrote a book. And in that book, he mentions, he, he explains 35 New Testament references that demonstrate the vital role that each person of the Trinity plays in our relationship to God. 35 different passages that explain you can't have a thorough relationship with God apart from an understanding of the Trinity. So with good reason then, he writes, the writers of the Confession have written, this doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion, all of our dependence on God. Finally, just the very last thing I'll read, this is a quote from Ryan McGraw in his little book, Is the Trinity Practical? He's answering that question, is the Trinity practical? And he says, the work of the triune God should comfort you greatly. You have three divine and almighty persons working for your good and your eternal salvation. These three agree perfectly in their work, and the triune God cannot fail in his purposes. Will the Father, who chose you in Christ before time began, let you slip from his grasp? Will the Son lose the fruit of his painful death on the cross and of the plan that he and the Father agreed upon from eternity past? Will the Spirit allow the work of the Father and the Son to be in vain by failing to apply the work of Christ to the elect or by allowing them to fall away from grace? Let your faith rest upon the glorious Trinity. Rest in the one true God and in each person in particular. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you have not hidden yourself from us so that we're left to our own speculation as to what you're like and what you desire and why we can trust you and love you and serve you and how we should worship you. But we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us very plainly and clearly on the pages of the Bible. We thank you that you are the eternally and uniquely existent infinite God. We thank you that we worship a God who infinitely exceeds our comprehension. We pray that you would grant our hearts humble reverence for you, deep love for you, worship of you as we begin to grow little by little and throughout all eternity in our understanding of who you are. We thank you for the revelation of yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you that we know you as the Father who loves us, the Son who died for us, and the Spirit who has applied that work of salvation to our souls. We worship you, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.